Hello, heroes. I'm Hannah Schaefer. And I'm Evan Rowland. Welcome to Design Duck. So a few days ago, Evan and I met up to do essentially what was like a one-day Questlandia retreat. Yeah, we set aside some hours to go over where things are at and take the first steps towards making a, a sort of comprehensive first draft. Um, and this was really helpful because it's been a long time since we've hosted a playtest. This is coming up on a year almost of doing the podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> no promises. You know, you move your, you set your goalposts, then you move them. Right. That's how soccer works, right? Mm-hmm. That's at least how yeah. game design works. So we sat down to review all of the different facets of the game from the theme to, you know, our own design goals to the tone and how we want it to feel when you play, even to the price point that we could imagine selling the game at and what like our Kickstarter targets are going to be. Um, and then the mechanics. It was good to go over what we've, you know, talked about deciding before. Just make sure that we are actually on the same page, still feels right, and figure out what parts are, you know, still in flux. I found that for me, you know, even though it was like only a few hours of work, uh, I just found it really helpful in being like, oh yeah, okay, we actually have done a lot of work on this game. Mm -hmm. So what did we start with? We started by talking about the themes of Questlandia 1 and how those translate to the themes of Questlandia 2 and whether our sort of goals for the like the story that we want to tell has changed. Um, so yeah, Evan, what, what were those conversations like? It was reassuring to find out that we were still on the same page and had a pretty clear idea of what we wanted to talk about with the game. It's still a game about the interplay of what an individual wants and what a society is demanding. And people put in the position where they have to choose. And we talked about maybe, unlike Questlandia 1, maybe our answers have shifted a little bit to that question of when do you tend to a failing society? And that's thanks to the world we're living in now and the people we are now. In Questlandia 1, our answer was a little closer to uh, forget that society. <laughs> and now it's a little more a little more sympathetic, a little more of the idea that maybe it is good to take some direct action to try to make things better. In any case, it's that situation where you legitimately have the choice of helping your society maybe even helping it, of, of at least doing what it's asking of you or not. And the game doesn't punish you or, you know, make one option always the right one. That seems like a consistent goal. It was in Questlandia 1, it's in Questlandia 2, and we want to really just make that question more open and explicit and able to be tackled in different ways in different kinds of worlds. Yeah. You know, that's it wasn't like a way that I had thought about it before. The idea of like Questlandia 1 
being this game that kind of encouraged you to throw your society under the bus and mm-hmm. like sometimes even be a little bit it wasn't like you as a player couldn't be trolling because the game told you that it was okay to play that way. Like the game yeah. was like, yeah, look it. You have to either yeah, accomplish your goal or throw your society under the bus. Well, you want to be able to do your goal. So like, right. bye-bye. But when you expressed it that way, it made me think that like there is a person that I know in the real world who voted for Trump because it was funny. Well, maybe the uh, the gravity of the idea of throwing a society under the bus has become a little bit more tangible. Because a society isn't just, you know, the rules and the structure and the man. It's the people who make up the society. And when you throw it under the bus, it's really the people who are most stuck in that society who are getting thrown. The people with the least power to, you know, escape what their society has set out for them. Yeah, so suddenly it's like it no longer feels funny to be like, I'm the slug king, look at me, I'm such a troll, just throwing my society under the bus. I'm like, no, I don't want the slug king to be able to do that in the game without cost and consequences. Yeah, it's time for a slug philosopher king. (laughs) A slug empath, if you will. (laughs) So that was, I mean, that was a thing. And that was helpful. The way that you described it, I found really helpful in sort of going forward and thinking about some of the mechanics of the game. And like, how are we going to design a game about collapse that doesn't encourage this, uh, some men just want to watch the world burn mentality? Yeah. It's, you know, I still don't want it to be a game where, you know, you've got to be the hero and step up and save your society. But I don't want it to be a game that trivializes the idea of a society crumbling. And I think we can do that. I think we can hit that balance. Yeah, at this point to me, just there's something that feels very uh, pepe about, like, um, delighting in chaos. so we then we took our our intentions for the philosophy and themes of the game and then we talked about our intentions for the more tangible side for when is this game going to come out uh how much is it going to cost is it you know how does it tie into the business that we're trying to have and we obviously you know, didn't decide anything final, but it turns out we were on a pretty similar page for what we're imagining as the product that's being produced as this game. We're both imagining a hardcover rulebook. We're imagining that that comes with some supplementals, you know, and the core supplement, the sort of heart of the whole game is the way that you're recording information about the worlds you're exploring. So this is where we get into talking about where our current conversation is around uh, three-ring binders versus journals versus 
index cards that you then put in card sleeves mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever. All of the various ideas that we've uh, been brainstorming about, like, how do we create these worlds that are flexible while also giving you, like, an object that you will want to display that's beautiful. Yeah, to, to briefly recap, from the beginning of this game, we thought it would be really nice to have a tangible physical object that recorded your travels through a fantastic world, recording the culture you found there, strange creatures and plants, whatever seems important to your group. So that you could, you know, open that book up later and relive that world. And then, critically, we wanted to wrap that into the gameplay itself, where you might have a rule that says flip to a random page of this journal, and that'll influence future worlds. So we were going forward thinking, you know, in very, like, missed the video game terms of a library of journals, each journal detailing a world. Mm -hmm. And we just sort of slammed into a brick wall when we realized it's actually that there's no right length for one of those journals. If they're 20 pages long, you're going to get into a world and you're going to feel stressed about having to fill exactly 20 pages. You'll feel bad if you leave the world early and you have all these blank pages. You'll feel It'll feel awkward if you... If you have 22 pages worth of information, and so you have to grab another journal and fill out one page. Basically, the amount of time you spend in a world should be flexible, and so the way that you record it needs to be flexible. So that conversation has evolved to this idea currently of what is essentially like a game board that serves as kind of a map slash table of contents to lead you through your game. Uh, Evan, you're, I think you're, you're better describing this than I am. I, I keep like, I describe it as like a psychedelic table of contents. Cause I don't like the idea, like map doesn't quite fit because map connects to me to something very like spatial, but it's mm-hmm. also a map of sort of like your ideas. Like it's like a cognitive map. It's like a guidebook, right? Like, like you'd have those maps where you'd, have, you know, it would show the map of the town or whatever, but it would also list places of interest to visit. It might list some history of the town. It might list a whole bunch of things. It's a little closer to that. Describe what this actually looks like as an object. I feel like that's what we need to kind of ground (laughs) ground people in this description. We're only at the rough draft phase, but I imagine this starting as a fairly small object. It's very folded up. It's folded into itself and I want it to be sealed, like with a wax seal. So you break this seal, and you pull open the folds. And in the center panel, there's the map. This is where you'll fill out the landmarks of your world. And you've lifted four pieces of paper away to reveal it. And on those pieces of paper, you have places to put information. One of them will talk about what troubles your world... Another will talk about societal norms and customs of your world. Another might talk about technology. And so you have these panels of information. As you explore your world, you can fold out those panels even more. So something that started with individual threats to your nations, you know, 
were threatened by sickness, you can fold out if you're exploring that part of your world more, and it'll unfold into a new section that has more detail, where you might be able to put in specific factions and antagonists, and it'll have special rules for dealing with them. So if you have a world with a dynamic antagonistic force, your map will unfold in that direction and you'll have more room to put in information and more rules to handle it, unique to that world. So different worlds will unfold in different directions multiple times, expanding out the map as you explore it. So some worlds you might only explore a little bit and it'll be a small map by the end, a small guide. And we're not like entirely in agreement on what this final product is going to look like, which is okay because it's maybe a little early to be thinking about the final product, but it's not, it's hard to not like constantly be forward imagining like what's this game going to look like when it's done. Uh, Mm -hmm. I am right now much more in favor of something that kind of looks just like a sort of simple, traditional unfolding game board. And when I imagine what you're describing, it's like a game board that then folds out into like these tiny accordions at the end where it's like, oh, but un- yeah, oh, unfurl. Oh, now it's factions. Oh, unfurl. <laughs> now-, <laughs> now it's uh, cataloging the different ferns in this society. Sounds and, uh, nice. And I'm yeah. like, no, I want it to be simple, like just this simple object with maybe this map in the center and then kind of like, you know, a northwest, east and south part of the board that unfolds also, not then with these tiny little accordions, but we we have time to duke it out. I need to make a mock-up of what I'm I know, yeah, I think we should, you should draw it. You're you're making these little hand gestures, like these are like fingernail-sized. That is what I'm imagining, and and I'm very critical of it. I'm thinking like four fingernails side by side, (laughs) like, you know, hefty, hefty sheets of paper. All right, let's draw. Maybe you can do a mock-up and we can like share it online. Yeah. Okay. So where we are now then in this conversation is that the game will ship with this unfolding psychedelic table of contents slash map slash guide and this hardcover book, which I imagine as like less like what it looks like to be holding you know, D&D 5th edition in your hands and more what it looks like to be holding like Dinotopia in your hands. Like a very illustrated uh, coffee table style book. Yeah, but like not the kind of coffee table book that ends up in like the Barnes and Noble bargain bin. One that has like a I, lot of- I mean, it would, it would be cool if it was in Barnes and Noble. That would be cool. <laughs> but in the bargain bin- Well- it will be a bargain. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we have to think, that's a good question. It's like, is it better to have your role-playing game make it into Barnes & Noble, but end up on the 60% off, 80% off deep discount? Like the ones that they put in, you know, the little entryway section as you enter. I don't know. I, I saw one I, the I, other day. I was in Barnes & Noble this week and there was one that was like, I'm not even joking. It was like a book on classic assault weapons. That could be us. (laughs) That could be our market. So (laughs) I was like, what the fuck? But but that would be like one of the unfolding sections of this map. Oh, yeah. Classic (laughs) classic assault weapons of your society. (laughs) (laughs) So so, 
And we actually imagine multiple maps shipping together. Like it's not just going to be one one guidebook or one map. It's going to be this hardcover book, and then it, there will maybe like be like five of these sealed maps. Right, like a campaign's worth, because each one is another world you're going through. Or each one could be a full campaign, and then they get you five campaigns to be decided. Hmm. Could be. (laughs) Well, I think we've had different ideas about whether in one campaign you are exploring multiple worlds or just one world. Right. Wait, we have a different idea on that? (laughs) Next question. (laughs) (laughs) In any case, when you buy this game, it comes with a rule book, a bundle of maps, and whatever whatever tools you need to play the game. That might look like dice, maybe custom dice. We're, 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 we've drafted a system that uses some custom dice, and we'll get to that in a minute. Maybe a symbol reader, an alethiometer-like, you know, compass rows of symbols. Maybe some custom pencils. We'll see. (laughs) We really like a custom pencil. And then there'll probably be an all-digital version, a print-and-play version that can be bought underneath that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't want to get too much into the weeds of components of the game because this could all change. Like, this could all change next week. Yeah. So I imagine that, you know, in the future, as we're really, as we're honing in on kind of individual price points and stuff. We'll do a more like components focused episode, but it has- The overall idea is that our basic version is closer to our deluxe version of previous games. Yeah. And with that, it's been important for us to make sure that whatever kind of PDF or print and play option is available, that it feels just as good. Yeah. Um, You know, that this is an easy, that it's easy to print out this guidebook. Mm-hmm. That it's easy to print out the rule book and that, you know, if we end up using dice with custom symbols on the faces that they map to, you know, that you could use standard D6s. So we've talked about these guidebooks and that gets into the idea of the whole meta plot of the game. And so in our retreat, we went over this. We went over, you know, what is the world outside of the worlds that you're exploring who are you in there? And what's what's your ambition there? So we're keeping the meta plot. I think that is certain. Yeah. <laughs> you had this, you hesitated. No, I'm in. <laughs> uh, but there's a lot of questions around who are the junk poets? How did they end up in this library? Is it even a library? As of the retreat this weekend, it is now possibly no longer a library. We don't know. Who even knows? What does a library look like? What? How does the <laughs> library function? What type of future is this? Well, the library, the whole idea of a library came from the journals. Yeah. You're making these journals of worlds and you have a big collection of journals and some people might call that a library. So we had this brainstorm where I was thinking a lot about museums, having just been to two kind of weird examples of a museum, or at least weird in that I think when a lot of people imagine a museum, they imagine like the Metropolitan Museum of Art, 
or like a history museum with artifacts in different rooms arranged by, you know, this one is Eastern Asian artifacts. This one is African artifacts. But I just went to Philadelphia a few weeks ago and saw both Eastern State Penitentiary, which is this historic prison that's been turned in, turned into a museum, and uh, the muter, muter, mutter. Somebody always corrects me when I say the, the muter museum, but they always say a different thing. Mm-hmm. So I don't believe anybody. Yeah. I'm like, you don't know. You're just saying a word. Well, I actually don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say the Muter Museum, uh, which is like a museum of medical oddities. Uh, and my sister is also just about to go to grad school to uh, study public history and potentially become a museum curator. So we've been talking a lot about like what different ways to do museums and sort of the like how political museums are when they often kind of try to present as like weirdly politically neutral, mm-hmm. even though history, like the way that you present history is so politically charged. Yeah. Like what you choose. So without getting too uh, off track with this, it got me thinking about the metaphor of a museum instead of the metaphor of a library and the junk poets as these people who are essentially like hired scavengers of these snooty curators, every one of whom has their own political agenda. Whom? Who? This makes me want to research <laughs> the, uh, you know, the British museum culture during the time of, you know, when they were going into other countries and basically stealing artifacts, because, you know, these belong in a museum, stealing culture to to display and own. And what what were the politics going on there? Because that seems kind of similar. We're going to go into these worlds. We're going to find their culture and print it up in our museum and display it. That might be the the wonderful people you're working for in the meta plot of this game. So we don't know if this is an idea that we're actually going to roll with, but I don't know. where. What do you think? Where are you right now in this conversation of like a museum analogy or like museum metaphor versus library metaphor? I feel like the the source of this issue, the source of the answers to that has to come from how you record the worlds you've been to. So we have this idea of the unfolding maps. And if that works, that's going to color the whole meta plot around it, right? That's the place where they're gathered, the kinds of people who will be looking for it, the kind of gains they're trying to get by accumulating them. But before we figure all that out, it's really important to just know if the unfolding maps work, if they're fun. Yes. So I'm not going to, I don't feel like I want to commit too much to the meta plot before getting one of these maps, a prototype, to the table and experimenting with it and seeing how it feels. It's this weird thing where it's like you come up with a story And then you start designing the game and you're like, the game that I'm designing does not work with this story. So you adapt the story to fit your design and then you adapt the design to fit your story. And like, I feel like you're you're always doing both simultaneously. It's a little painful to have to throw (laughs) away all the work. You know, it's like the library of worlds. We put a lot of thought into it by now. A lot of thought about the, the world weavers who worked there and the junk poets and where they're coming from. 
And if the central mechanics of the game are changing, I think that the setting has to change with it. I don't feel like this is such a huge departure, though, because I, I feel like, you know, it's been a year of talking about junk poets and world weavers as these librarians, and we never really got that far with it. Like, something was never sticking for me. You can tell in some games where they didn't manage to throw out the baggage, that there's some stuff remaining that's probably from earlier versions that's just, like, tagging along for the ride. Because who wants to throw out your work? <laughs> like what? Do you have an example? I think it would be cruel to, <laughs> to give an example. So Metaplot aside for now, we dedicated some time in our retreat to thinking about the flow of roleplay in Questlandia 2 and what it's been like in our previous games. And I'd call it the weakest part of our previous games. I think our our games have a high demand of players to sort of just do their thing. You know, you you set up the scene. It helps you set up a scene. It helps you choose a goal for your scene and what you want to achieve. And then it says, now go do it. Role play it. And that can be tough. That is not a small ask. And there's some games that really excel at giving you guidance for that moment-to-moment role play. Games that come to mind are Apocalypse World or D&D. These games that give you some character-defining statistics and moves that tell you these are the things that you have as options to get what you want. Well, I I mean, I don't know if I totally agree at, when we're talking about like Apocalypse World as an example, because I find that... I really like it as a system, but I don't think it gives you that guidance like the GM does. Apocalypse World does have a list of things you can try. It says you can lash out. Well, I'm thinking of Monster <laughs> yeah. Monster Hearts. But in Monster Hearts, for example, you can lash out, you can hold steady, you can gaze into the abyss, and you know that this is your tool set for what you can try within a scene. And the GM helps you set up that scene, but then you have some agency. I feel like the weakest part of our games has been less about not knowing what to do and more about the mechanics and the process of rolling and resolving and the dice getting in the way of doing it. In Questlandia, you get one roll per scene, and that has to do all the work of the scene. And sometimes that's difficult when your scene, you know makes more sense as a set of smaller challenges rather than one big challenge. So right now we've been battling a little bit with these two competing desires. One, which is that Questlandia had this thing that a lot of people thought was really cool, which is that the dice results, instead of relating to sort of like power or strength, like I got a seven, so I beat your five, uh, corresponded to narrative outcomes. So it would be like, you know, you rolled a six and that is a resounding success. If you won on a six, if you lost on a six, that is like an escalating failure and you draw a new trouble for your kingdom. I know Questlandia only uses six-sided dice 
and I added a seven in there somewhere, but like presumably <laughs> there is a world in which, you know, it uses 10 sided dice or something. Uh, but you resolved this narration and sort of picked your narration through this dice matching mini game that is clunky. It's just time. Like it's time to let it die. I thought it was so cool. Me too. I was, I was like, on board. this is so cool. <laughs> now I just feel like it's had its moment in the sun. It's just like, it's time to just like put it in a basket and send it down the Nile. Oh. Where it will then become Moses and mm-hmm. like lead a new people. So it's like somebody else can take it. See, it can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it can. We've got pyramids to build. Moses was the blonde, the baby, right? He was a baby. (laughs) (laughs) So we want to keep the dice connected to narrative meaning, but just like unload and like unpack and undo this dice matchy game. And there's a question about unpacking the importance of it or making it so it's it's not always a scene ending role that will have setting wide implications it could be used to resolve a banana negotiation at a market or something yeah that that was another thing was that it always had this sort of like it it was so kind of arbitrary at the end of your turn was like okay now you're going to do your big role to resolve your scene. Uh, and sometimes you need to know the outcome of a conflict and you don't want it to have, like, it's small. Yeah. It's small and you just, like, need a little bit of guidance to push the story. So to go over this draft that we made of an alternative system, we took six-sided dice still, but we've given them symbols. The idea is that these symbols would correlate to locations on your map. So you might have a church, and it has a heart symbol. And you have a desert with underground trees. That's a club. Obviously. Yeah. So we mentioned earlier the idea that these maps unfold, and there's a north, south, east, and west direction. And each of these directions talks about a different aspect of your society. The things that trouble it, the things that it aspires to, the kinds of customs that make it up. We're looking at the idea of having a symbol mapped to each of those directions. And those are on dice. And when you're encountering a problem, you roll and you're looking for multiples of a certain symbol. The more of a symbol that you get, the more you succeed at your aim, and the outcome of your success is governed by that symbol. If that symbol had to do with relationships of your kingdom, the people of it, a large success might be making a new ally who will support your aims from here on in, and a minor success might be making a temporary friend. And a failure might look like driving people apart. So as you roll a number of dice, you're given some options. You have a spread of symbols, and you can choose what kind of effect you want to have on the world. 
And the more duplicates of that symbol you have, the greater the effect. It's essentially a kind of a modified version of like a no, but yes, and where like if you are having your scene at the church of the sacred salt lick, uh, you're going to roll the, you know, you'll be rolling the heart die because that location corresponds with that symbol. If you only get one heart when you roll, it's a, you know, no, you didn't get this, but you're going to get this other cool effect. There's going to be some sort of list to guide you in these. But if you have this pool of dice where now you have two hearts or three hearts, you get these yes ands with sort of these stacking narrative impacts. Does that? Mm-hmm. Cool. It's a rough idea, but it's what we're going to be mocking up for our next playtest. All right. So where does that leave us now? We are going to be reaching out again to our two playtester groups to schedule the next playtest. It's been like months and months since we last did a playtest. Yeah, it's not it's not ideal. Yeah. So I, I think that with this, you know, we're going to have to kind of wipe this like clean and probably maybe start over again with a new story. Mm-hmm. Um Because our goal is to have, you know, like an actual playable version of the game for Metatopia, which is like the game design festival that happens in New Jersey in early November this year, I believe. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get a playtest on the schedule for mid-September. Right now, we're in the process of trying to get our game, Good Dog, Bad Zombie, to press. So we're kind of being realistic about our timelines. Yeah. And not scheduling... Questlandia playtest while also trying to like do that. Yep. Still a three person team. Yeah. You know? We have limited resources. Uh, and unfortunately, despite our quantum experiments, there are still only 24 <laughs> hours in a day. And I have not been able to successfully clone myself. But the, you know, I wouldn't call it a complete failure either. No, I mean, I did make that one like kind of cute clone that I can carry around in a basket. Right. It's not very good at game design, (laughs) but you know, it's good for soliciting snacks. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, what is our next episode going to be about? Everything except politics. Wait, opposite of that. Opposite. Our next episode is going to be about this prevailing myth that there is such thing as an apolitical game. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what we'll be talking about in our next episode. Uh, In the meantime, if you have thoughts or questions, let us know what you think about this new unfolding guidebook idea. Guidebook. Guidebook. Book. Yeah, I put an umlaut over that. (laughs) Is that what it's called? An umlaut? I, that is what it's called. I okay. don't know if that's the sound it makes, but... Oh, book. All book. right. If you want to correct me on my use of umlaut, tell us how to pronounce the Muter Museum, uh, or talk about how sad you are that we seem to be moving away from the idea of three ring binders, you can tweet to us at designdocpod or email us at designdocpod at gmail. And you should go and check out the Design Doc Pod Twitter This week, uh, we got a really cool email from somebody who works at a library in New Zealand and shared an old book with us that I think makes a pretty compelling argument for Team Three Ring Binder. This team's, but this team is, you know, in ashes, right? Well, 
you know, I mean, we may rise like a phoenix <laughs> someday again after everybody sees how cool this book is. So uh, I'm going to post some pictures of that to Twitter and check it out uh, because it's just like a really cool use of a, you know, snap, snap, snappity snap, put the things in. Binder. Is Binder word, is what yeah. people call them. Yes. The Design Doc intro and outro theme is created by our friend, musician, Pat King. Thank you, Pat. The Design Doc podcast is hosted by the One Shot Network, the same network that hosts great shows like Total Party Kill. Total Party Kill is a weekly live Twitch stream where John Patrick Cohen, Eddie Klinker, and James Dugan play through the Cephalofair games Gloomhaven. Join them in the stream to play along through the action and interact with a constantly changing cast of characters and special guests, or watch them after the fact on the OneShot YouTube channel. TPK airs Thursdays at 7 p.m. Central Time at twitch.tv slash OneShotRPG. So thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon, heroes.